Hello and welcome to Modern American Diplomacy, a podcast exploring the lives and contributions of America's most accomplished diplomats. I'm your host, Ben Reams, recording in Virginia with my colleague, Vida Vidigiris, in New York, and most importantly, Consul General Lawrence Randolph in Casablanca, Morocco. I think when I'm building a team, I've been in leadership for a couple of years, I think I am trying to look at my own privileges. I live in a society and I work in many societies that value able-bodied people, that value men, maybe over women. So thinking about, okay, those are going to be blind spots for me, right? Those are going to be things that I don't see in terms of formulating policy that might be effective to this country. How do I build a team where people are going to cover my blind spots, where things that I can't see, where things that I'm not going to be able to bring to a conversation, where things that I'm lacking. I want someone on my team who's going to challenge me, who's going to ask me to look at things differently, who's going to push me to be a better leader and to be really a better person ultimately because they're bringing different perspectives to this. I want that and I know it exists in our organization. In this podcast, we interview a lot of retired diplomatic legends, but we've also opened the aperture to speak with active duty rising leaders who have been coming up the ranks in a different time and in a different context. In that sense, I'm pleased to welcome Consul General Lawrence Randolph. Lawrence is a career member of the Senior Foreign Service and assumed responsibilities as U.S. Consul General in Casablanca in 2021. He previously worked for the Director General of the Foreign Service and served as Deputy Chief of Mission at the U.S. Embassy in Algeria, as Public Affairs Chief in Frankfurt, Germany. He also spent a year in Kabul, Afghanistan, leading the External Affairs Unit of the Political Section. He has been a Special Assistant in the offices of both Secretary Clinton and Secretary Kerry. He also served a year as a special assistant in the office of the Undersecretary of State for Public Diplomacy and Public Affairs. He has served in Cairo, Algeria, and Saudi Arabia. One quick disclaimer, as Foreign Service officers, all three of us are doing this interview in our personal capacities, and any views we express are our own and not necessarily those of the U.S. government. Vida, I am going to turn it over to you to start with the first question. Consul General Randolph, really, it's such a pleasure to have you here on the show. I would just like to start with a very basic question asking you, how did you get interested in public service and in foreign service in particular? Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here and see you both. All three of us served in Kabul together, so it's nice to be able to have this little reunion today. So my interest in the Foreign Service really came about when I was probably just a young child. I grew up in a really diverse neighborhood in Boston and was always interested in different cultures and languages. Lots of folks from the Caribbean in my neighborhood, from Haiti and the Dominican Republic and different islands in the Caribbean. So that always really interested in me. How were they different? What were they eating? What languages were they? speaking their history and background. To be honest, I didn't know what a foreign service officer was when I was in college, but I was invited to a discussion with then Ambassador Ruth Davis, a dear friend of mine who's actually also a foreign service officer. Her name is Belinda Jackson, invited me to a conversation. And when I heard her speak, I was like, wow. That's exactly what I want to do. I didn't know before that this was an option in life, but that's it. So I'm a really big proponent of the Diplomat in Residence program and all the programs that we have that get diplomats on campuses and in front of students talking because it's such a big and diverse country and students like me otherwise wouldn't even know that this career existed. So that one conversation with Ambassador Ruth Davis, I don't know, 25 years ago changed my trajectory and my life. Yeah, that's great. Ambassador Davis is really a legend for us. And the organization that is supporting this podcast, ADST, 
Association for Diplomatic Studies and Training really values her input. So we're hoping to get her on here one of these days as well. I just want to ask about the experience of being a Pickering Fellow. I'm not sure everybody knows what's involved, myself included, honestly, but we just know that it's prestigious and that it helps identify and prepare talent. Can you say a little bit about what that experience was like for you? Yeah, for me, it was a really great experience. And our Pickering cohort, the group of people that I came in the Foreign Service with, we were seven in my cohort. It was a smaller group of students than six of us are still in. And that was almost 20 years ago. So 20 years ago that we entered the Foreign Service and entered the fellowship even four years before that. When I was coming up, we were selected as sophomores in college. We were undergraduate Pickering Fellows. And we knew that we were going to have a career in the Foreign Service. Again, we still have to take the exams and we have to complete graduate school. But at the end of that was a Foreign Service spot, basically. And it was great. For me, it was actually really a game changer because I was going to a small private university, Morehouse College in Atlanta, and it was getting to be a little bit more expensive, to be very honest, than I could afford. So without the Pickering Fellowship, I likely wouldn't have been able to finish my undergraduate degree at Morehouse. But it was just great. I had the opportunity to study abroad. I studied in Spain and in Brazil. Vida's also Lucifone, shouting out the Lucifone people on the call. Absolutely. <laughs> so, oh, Hello. yeah. Okay. That's right. Of course. Oh okay. That's another connection. So, all of us. Obrigado. <laughs> So yeah, I had the opportunity to study in Brazil and in Spain, do internships. I interned in Mozambique with the State Department and in WHA, where I thought I would be serving for most of my career. I wanted to be a Latin Americanist when I first started and then entered the Foreign Service and it's been a great ride. So I talk to new Pickerings and students who are interested in the Pickering Fellowship all the time. Since I've joined, there's another fellowship also called the Wrangell Fellowship that is also similar to the Pickering. I think the one difference is that they also have a component that's on the Hill, also a very prestigious fellowship that's administered out of Howard University. And I'm a big proponent of these programs because, again, it's giving students opportunities that otherwise generally wouldn't have that information and background about our service. Thank you. It's really interesting now because I realized that I came in thinking that I would be in WHA as well with Spanish and Portuguese and probably Vida did <laughs> as well because I know that you were very interested in Brazil. And then here we all are, having also spent some time at Columbia. That's where you did your master's, yes. Lawrence, and that's where Vida is now. So it's a small it's foreign very, service, indeed. Very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it's a small foreign service, and I think that's one of the joys of the foreign service, just being open. I came in really yep. wanting to do Latin American stuff, but there weren't a lot of Latin American countries on my list when I started the service. So my career development officer said, would you be interested in learning Arabic or Mandarin? And I said, well, <laughs> <laughs> maybe Arabic. Let's try Arabic. And then 20 years later, I'm still at it. So it's been a really wild ride. But I think that's the joy and sometimes the scary part of the service. But I think for me, it's really been a great experience just being open to things in life and where this road can lead us. And if I can just pick up a little bit on the conversation about making sure that various students are aware of the Foreign Service and then have the means to join potentially in the future, what have you found besides the Diplomat in Residence program that you mentioned or a couple of these fellowships that you mentioned as well? What have you found 
to be the most effective ways to promote the foreign service among the students in the United States, among perhaps older professionals, since we can't join until much later in life. And some people choose this as a second career, or even third. And especially, what can we do better about making sure that we represent the United States and really focus on diversity and inclusion? I think that one way, and we also have a hometown diplomats program where when you're at home, you can go to your high school or go back and talk about your service and talk about what you're doing abroad to your local community. It can be at your church or mosque or synagogue or any kind of religious institution or your school or really wherever. And I think that's a really great program because, again, so many people don't really know what a diplomat is and what we do and why it matters matters and why it's important and how we are serving our country as well. And I think it's just important to connect back to Americans. I mean, I'm talking about my own family, right? <laughs> Sometimes like even my cousins and nieces and nephews, I explain it once and it's like, so what do you do again? And I explain it again. Which state department? <laughs> exactly. Which state yeah. is that again? Arizona? I was like, I've actually never right. been to Arizona. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's a learning experience, I think, for our families as well. Because as you know, the State Department is all encompassing when you're a diplomat. Really, it's a family affair because you're spending so much time abroad mm. away from your family. So again, I think plugging into your school, religious, social community when you're back home as diplomats, I think that's crucial. I would really love to see the Diplomat in Residence program extended, having more diplomats in residence. That was such a critical part for me knowing about the State Department. And I think there's so many really diverse institutions of higher education all across the country. If we can get just more diplomats in front of students talking about what we do in our story and why it's important to serve your country in this Mm -hmm. way, I think that would be really powerful. I think when you're overseas, I've spoken to American student groups all the time that are here in Morocco. I haven't always lived in countries where they have a lot of American students studying abroad, but I happen to be in one now. So it's been really great just to connect with American students who are here already interested in learning about the world, right? If they're living in Morocco, but not necessarily sure about what the State Department is or how they can plug in. So doing that. Also, just even more closer to home for more foreign service officers, we have Marine security guards, right, that work in our embassies all over the world. And many of them are pretty young and also don't know a lot about the State Department, but again, are having this experience abroad right now with the Marines. And one day, if they leave the Marine Corps, might be interested in being a foreign service officer at some point. So I think there are a number of different ways in which you can plug in, but those are just some of my top ideas. Completely agree. Yeah. So I'd like to just pivot to something you said before about being open to new experiences and how that's part of the job and creates experiences you didn't really expect and how crucial your first tour can be. And your first tour was Cairo. And I understand a lot of listeners may not know that Cairo is just a massive post for us. It's a huge embassy. And the ambassador at the time was Frank Richardoni, and you were his staff assistant for him. So faced with this giant embassy and this giant of an ambassador, just want to know if you could reflect a little bit on what that experience was like for you, what you learned from it. Yeah, that's a good question, too. Well, it was a little intimidating or maybe a lot intimidating. (laughs) (laughs) I remember when I moved 
to Cairo, since I was a Pickering, I knew I was going to be in the State Department and I knew this was going to be my career and I was excited about it. But I remember it didn't actually hit me that I was going to really be doing this until I was on the plane going to Cairo and I was sitting next to a woman from somewhere in the U.S. And she was like, I saved up all of my money to do this Nile cruise. I'm so excited about Egypt and I'm going to be there for two weeks. How long are you going to be there? And I was like, two years. And saying two years out loud to her, I was like, whoa, whoa. Two years is a long time, especially when you're just turned 24. It was like, okay, yes, two years. Yep, that's me, Cairo. And then I get to Cairo and... It was not long after our invasion of Iraq. So a number of Arabists were being pulled to serve in Baghdad. So it meant everybody else who was in the region, especially in our consular sections, were pulling double or triple duty. I mean, we had a really small team. My first year as many diplomats, first year in the Foreign Service was as a consular officer. And that's just great work. You're learning about the country in a way. You're serving American citizens who are abroad in a very direct way. So that was a great year. But it was intense. We had a bombing in a local market in Khan al-Khalili while I was there. We had lots and lots of both immigration and immigrant visas to issue with one quarter of the staff. So I remember I got there and they made me the immigration visa unit chief. And I was like, I've never issued a visa, period. <laughs> so how do I get to be a chief in one of the largest embassies at the time? Cairo was like one of the top three largest embassies in the world. But that's our service. <laughs> Sometimes, given where we are, you just have to do a job and rely very heavily on mentors. Let's just say that. So I was fortunate to have some good mentors. And then working for Ambassador Richardoni and having that view in my first assignment of what an enormous embassy that was and working for this icon of American diplomacy was just a real privilege. Not always easy. It was a hard job. I had to learn a lot to be able to work at that level, representing the ambassador and working with the ambassador in the DCM, the number two in the embassy, at an interagency level on your first tour and working with all of these departments and trying to move paper and get them well briefed on where they were going and what they were doing all around the country or back in Washington before calls and meetings. It was an intense year, but really an enormous education for me. So I always tell folks if they have an opportunity earlier in their career to do a staff job like that, there's no better education because if you're interested in being a leader later on in your career, you get to see what actually is happening in a front office, how the leadership of an embassy negotiates both Washington and local policies and politics. So it was an enormous interagency and really, I think, mm -hmm. set me up for success in terms of every other post that I went to. I had in the back of my mind that executive level leadership idea that my job is bigger than just my individual way in which I'm plugging in. There's a whole bigger picture, a whole universe of things going on. And I have to think about that even when I'm doing something that kind of be in the weeds. <laughs> so looking at these experiences that you've had in leadership, as well as the mentors whom you mentioned, what really stands out to you in terms of lessons that you have learned from them? I mean, you were the special assistant for Secretary Kerry and for Secretary Clinton. What were some ways that you were able to adapt to their leadership styles or take some of what they were teaching you with you? And then what kind of techniques have you also employed in mentoring others or seeking mentors yourself? 
Wow, that's an important question as well. I mean, mentorship and sponsorship for me are really important things in our service. And I have to say, almost every job that I've had in the Foreign Service that wasn't directed, right? The assignments that I've gotten to choose or have a little bit of say in, it's always been a mentor or someone who believed in me pushing me or putting me forward for a job. So even jobs that I didn't think I was ready for, they were like, you are ready, you can do it. You're not ready until you're in it and you're learning and you're doing it. So really, I was very, very, very fortunate all along just to have people pushing me and saying that you can do it, you're ready, even though you don't believe you are. That whole idea of this imposter syndrome that I think a lot of minorities and women suffer from, that's BS. <laughs> you can do this. You have all that it takes to do these jobs. So I've been really fortunate to have good mentors. Working with Secretary Clinton and Kerry was a huge education, and I feel I will forever be grateful for both of those opportunities. I learned different things from each of them, I think, with Secretary Clinton, it was just to be rigorous. <laughs> Secretary Clinton always read her briefs and was like always the most prepared in the room. She wanted to know all of the Talk details. Talk about intimidating. Talk about intimidating. As someone who was trying to get her ready for meetings and briefings, it was like, yeah, okay. So I really have to read all of this and try to absorb it so that if she has questions or we have to go back, I have enough of it in my head that I know who to reach back to to get answers. And it was great. I mean, in the beginning, I remember the first week I was on the job. I always share this story with folks I mentor just to say sometimes you're in spaces and it's important to have friends. And I remember my first week on the job, I like called my friend afterwards, like crying. I can't do this. Like, I'm actually not bright enough. <laughs> you know? And he was like, listen, they're not going to have you in that job long if you're actually not bright enough. So just ride it out. <laughs> Everybody has a bad day. Give, them hell, right? Give it another day. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. He's like, you've had a tough day. Keep going. You're going through hell. Keep going. You'll get on the other side of it. And I did that. And then it actually ended up being this amazing opportunity. I learned so much and grew so much from working for her. But like, if you would have asked me that first week, if I can do this or if I should stay on this job, I'd be like, nah, this isn't for me. But again, every other job from Ambassador Palachik when she was looking for a DCM in Algeria and I remember we had just been in Algeria vacationing and we saw her over Thanksgiving and my husband and I were there and we had a really nice time. And when we were leaving, he said, I would love to live in Algeria. I had already lived there before. I had been head of the public affairs section there before. He said, I would love to live here. And I said, there's no way we're going to be able to live here. The only other job that I could do here is to be the number two in the embassy. And like, I'm not ready for that. It's going to be a while. And then two months later, <laughs> I get a call from Ambassador Palachik, from Joan Palachik saying, would you be interested in throwing your hat in the ring bidding on the job? No guarantees, but I think you'd be really competitive if you bid. And I was like, do you know who you're talking to? <laughs> like me? I'd be competitive to be the number two at this embassy. So again, I've really been fortunate to have these sponsors and mentors just pushing me in areas that I otherwise wouldn't have pushed myself because I wouldn't have been comfortable really throughout my career. Helga did like an inception there. He put the idea in your head, put it out into the world. And there it was, exactly. Yeah, but I think, Lawrence, I mean, obviously your mentors and leaders around you, but having worked with you, I'll just say that all of us who have been either your peers or your subordinates, see your potential and your abilities on day one, second one. So don't ever look back at that first week working for a Secretary Kerry as anything but that. No, it's been an honor. 
Thank you. Yeah. And I mean, it's also important to pay it forward, right? I've benefited from such great leadership that it's really important for me at this point in my career where I'm a consul general and I've been a DCM and I have this experience that I can share with folks to actually pay it forward and talk about how other folks that I think might not even think of themselves as ready. I mean, we have a woman here who's working with us who's so good. She's so good. And she's like, I don't know if I'm bidding DCM jobs. And I was like, yes, you are, actually. So let's pull that list and look at what's available for you next summer. And she's like, you think? I was like, I'm certain that you should be bidding on these jobs. So I think it's also incumbent on us. I love this organization that I'm a part of, right? Is to see people who I'm working with and think about, okay, how how can we pull them forward even when they don't think they're ready to say, yep, you're ready. <laughs> you're very ready to do this. You have all of the emotional intelligence and all of the other skills that are really important for senior leadership here. Two things you said that I really wanted to highlight. One was about the imposter syndrome and getting past that. And I think everybody has that to mm-hmm. some extent. And I think it's really important for people to hear from you say everybody's had that. And the other thing I just want to highlight is talking about stretching your limits and getting out of your comfort zone, because that's really, to me, where a lot of growth mm-hmm. happens. There's always been some moment in a job where I'm getting ready to brief somebody or I think I'm going to completely mess this up. <laughs> but the next time you do it, you're going to be yes. well more prepared. Yeah. And that's going to be the case, I think, your entire career, right? Even I have briefed the secretary multiple times and different members of the cabinet and the joint chief of staff. And even now, every time I'm about to do senior level brief like that, I'm still a little nervous. And I think that's great. It's healthy. It's healthy to have those nerves right. and it makes you focus a little bit more and be a little bit more concentrated on what your mission is and what really the key information for this very senior level American who is trying to forward something here in country X, what do they need? What is cutting through and what might they not know? What is a useful tidbit of information that you have because you lived here and you speak the language and you know the society? What is that? So I think if you didn't have those nerves, it would be unhealthy. (laughs) Yeah. I'd like to ask another question, speaking of nerves, about crisis management. So here we are all relaxed having this nice conversation, but it doesn't reflect necessarily the nature of our work. So you obviously have worked in the operations center. You've, as you said, have briefed our senior leaders a number of times. We were also in Kabul Mm -hmm. together, which is one stress after another, six-day weeks, if not more long days. What are some of the things that you do just to keep it all in perspective, to stay resilient and focused, but also be that person that other people want to see and work with and be around? Yeah, that's a good question. Something that's really important. And I thought about this a lot in my last job. I was working for Carol Perez, the current director general, thinking about resilience and how we are doing that as a department and as an organization in general, how we are supporting our employees, not only in stressful places, but really all over the information that we're giving them. And as a culture, what messages we're sending the people about what is appropriate and not appropriate and really trying to change that culture. One thing I remember when I first got into the job, one thing that Ambassador Perez, she sent a note out, and this seems like such common sense, but not always common, right? She sent out a note to everyone saying, when you first arrive at post, 
in a new country, after you travel across the world with your family and two suitcases and you don't have the proper food in the house and maybe no toilet paper, your next day, you shouldn't be in the office. You should spend that next day with your family, trying to get some groceries, (laughs) walking around the neighborhood maybe. And it was a revolutionary idea for the State Department because what do we do? We fly (laughs) into a country and maybe sometimes that same day, I can't tell you how many times that same day, later in the day, I've already been in the office looking at where my space is and trying to get logged on. And she's like, that's actually not healthy behavior. And as leaders, we should set a different example. We should tell people, really, it's okay. Just take a day. It doesn't have to be a long time. Just take a day when you get to country to get settled, settle yourself, settle your family, learn a little bit about your environment, relax a bit. It's a stressful arriving in a new country that you'll be living in. And I can't tell you how many people wrote back to us saying, thank you so much for saying this. We've always thought this, but we were never brave enough to say it. And I was like, wow, sometimes these revolutionary ideas are just really the leadership saying, take care of yourself, take a moment. And it was an important reminder for me that people need to hear that again and again and again from leadership and leadership needs to practice that as well. Because it's one thing if you say it and if you're not doing it, if they see you worn out and they see you in the office working 15 hour work days and not spending time with your family and then it's, well, you're telling me to do this. But you're a leader and I also want to be a leader and you're not modeling that. So there's then a disconnect. So I think one of the most powerful things we can do as a leader is take a break and say, it's been a rough couple of weeks. We got through this, this and this, and now I'm going to take a breather. And I would encourage you to also take breathers. I think that's really powerful in terms of resilience, just taking a moment. You can't give anything if your tank is empty. And I remember one thing that I thought about a lot in terms of in my last job as well. It was really a great learning experience because I got to see it from a very senior level, obviously working at the director general and just see like how culturally we need to be sending messages to, again, people with families. One of the things that the director general was really very passionate about was that we as an organization, and we got this pushed through with the last administration, get leave when we have kids. It seems like such a basic thing, but most people, especially men, and again, this would disadvantage women in the organization because women who are physically carrying a child have to take leave afterwards and have to deplete their leave. And she was like, actually, if you have a child, that's a major event. Men and women should just take some time off and be with your child. Saying that, and then thankfully having the congressional leadership that happened and being able to implement that, that was really powerful. And I think sent a powerful message. One other thing that I do just personally is I have a gratitude journal that I write in every night and even days that are really, really, really tough. I try to find five things at the end of the day that I can be thankful for. And I think that that helps me center even really tough days (laughs) because we all have them, right? We're in year two now of a global pandemic. We've had probably more tough days recently than we might have had in the years before that. Even on those really tough days to just center your mind before you go to bed, what was good about today? And they can be little things. Maybe it was an interesting meal you had or a nice conversation or something. It doesn't have to be earth shattering, but just end the day with a little bit of gratitude. That for me is very helpful. That's great. 
Thank you very much for that. As a relatively new mom myself, I really appreciated the leave, but also just being able to arrive at post and have some time to settle the family. Because we all know if your house is not settled or your elderly parents are not taken care of, you're just not going to be an effective worker. That is just the way it is. So we really appreciate all of the work that you and Ambassador Perez did on that. So we felt it in the field. We feel it in Washington. So really, really appreciate that. You touched upon making sure that your team is able to be resilient, to see you as a role model, actually practicing the behaviors that you teach them. What other approaches do you take to build an effective team, especially when we as diplomats are working abroad with host country nationals? What are some of the strategies that you employ? I think one of the most important strategies is when you have the opportunity to build a team is to try to build the most diverse team that you can build, right? And I think one of the great strengths of our country, and I think this is why we have such a powerful nation and a powerful example abroad and why we still have, I think, one of the premier diplomatic corps is because we are extremely diverse. We come from all over the world, <laughs> all over our country. We speak different languages. We look like different things. We're from different sexual orientations. We are differently abled. And I think when I'm building a team, I've been in leadership for a couple of years, I think I am trying to look at my own privileges. I live in a society and I work in many societies that value able-bodied people, that value men, maybe over women. So thinking about, okay, those are going to be blind spots mm. for me, right? Those are going to be things that I don't mm. see in terms of formulating policy that might be effective to this country. How do I build a team where people are going to cover my blind spots, mm. where things that I can't see, where things that I'm not going to be able to bring to a conversation, where things that I'm lacking. I want someone on my team who's going to challenge me, who's going to ask me to look at things differently, who's going to push me to be a better leader and to be really a better person ultimately because they're bringing different perspectives to this. They're from a different country, from a different state, from a different socioeconomic background, whatever. All the ways in which we're diverse in the country, I want that and I know it exists in our organization. When I enter a room, and this happens so much sometimes and it's really unfortunate, and you enter a room that's not diverse and I'm like, I know diversity exists in this organization. I know we have really talented women in this organization. Why is our country team mostly men? Why are the most senior leadership positions in this embassy mostly run by men? It doesn't make sense anymore. And 2022, and our policies are suffering because of it. If we don't have people at the table that are challenging, that are saying, how about we think about this? Or have you touched base with these people? Have you thought about having these conversations in this way. I've been around long enough and you get into this tunnel and you think you know what should be done. And then someone stops and says, have you thought about this? And you're like, no, actually I haven't, but thank you. And I constantly want people to be doing that to me. So when I'm building a team, that's my first priority, building a team that's excellent and that is excellent and diverse. But how do you, being in a country that may have different belief systems or different views on one issue or another, how do you promote American values? Right now we're celebrating, for example, Black History Month. What are the best ways to promote the Black American experience while you're serving abroad? And at the same time, explain the continuing challenges that we as a society face at home. Quite a challenging task, <laughs> if you will ask me. <laughs> Yeah, that is a really challenging task, but I think it's one in which we are really blessed in our country because we have such a diverse country and a diverse 
team at the State Department and we can have conversations. So when I go into the foreign ministry here and I talk about human rights and I can say, I know my country is also having very real conversations about human rights, (laughs) about women's rights, about the rights of minorities and religion, about queer issues, that we are having those issues internally in my country and we are charged with having them internationally as well. And I'm very proud that we do that. I'm proud as a child of ancestors of people who were trafficked. I'm proud that every year we write a trafficking in persons report and we push people in different countries to try to be a little better. So when I think about that, I was like, it's still a problem in our country. It's still something that we're working on. It's not always coming from this place of superiority, like we are big America, we do everything right and better. It's like we are charged with having conversations all over the world with you all about how we can all be better, right? how we can do it better in the U.S., how you can do it a little bit better here. And that's what you do among friends, right? You push each other to try to be better. So that's how I try to frame those conversations myself. And I think also it's really powerful when we show up in a space sometimes and people aren't expecting us. I know I've been in spaces with Vida and I know people are shocked often because she's so good and she comes in and people are like, wow. (laughs) And I just love that we are such a diverse country and we can change the narrative about what people think an American is or looks like or sounds like or how we are just by being who we are and by being excellent, showing up in that way. And I love that every time. My name is Lawrence Randolph, right? I have a very Anglophone name. (laughs) When I show up as this queer Black dude in a space, sometimes folks are like, huh, we weren't expecting you. (laughs) And that's cool. It's great that you weren't expecting me, but I'm here. So let's get to work. How are we going to do the work? And I think that's the powerful example of our country. I remember when I was in Algeria and I had been chosen as the DCM and Ambassador Palacic had a welcome reception for me. And she asked how I wanted her to introduce my husband because he was there at the reception as well. In French, and she was like, do you want me to call me a partner? Do you want me? I was like, well, in English, I call him husband. So I would just translate that word in French. I would say he's my husband. So she introduced, and it's like the chief of police and military leaders and security leaders. And you know, Algeria can be a relatively conservative society, right? And I remember, and she was like, so this is Lawrence Randolph. Many of you knew him. He's a friend of Algeria. He was here before. He served as PAO. He's really excited to be back. And this time, he's coming back with the family. This is husband Helga and I remember folks in the crowd were like, huh? <laughs> you know, like, there were a few folks like, wow, that's fascinating. But then we just got to work. And actually, a few people in the audience came up to me afterwards like, I'm so glad that you felt comfortable enough to stand up there with your husband and that we as a country have made this much progress where you can be an openly queer diplomat here. So it actually gave people the space to say that to me that might not have otherwise been comfortable saying that to someone. So I was like, all of this, I think, is about sometimes just opening up a little space and changing the narrative. And actually, we had a great time in Algeria. We loved our assignment there. My husband was like crying for weeks when we left. I wanted to come visit you. I couldn't. I tried. I remember. (laughs) Exactly. I know. It's like, uh, but you just never know where this is going to take you. And it's about, again, like I said in the beginning, about just being open to it all, right? 
I think that's great. Those stories of you showing up and surprising people or when you were introduced to Algerians, they hit on one thing that I've always admired about you, just working with you a little bit, which is that you know yourself and you show up as yourself and you get to work, but you also remain very open to people having questions for you. And I've found that impressive and also probably something I take for granted myself. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. It's funny because we were having this conversation today with a group because Glyfa, so our LGBTQIA plus organization and the State Department asked me to do a little video for Black History Month and like the intersectionality between blackness and queerness. And I was like, it really forced me to think about some things. And one thing that I thought about a lot today was just how important it is to one, just show up as yourself, the best you you can be every day and whatever that is, but also to not be afraid to take jobs because of who you are. I remember when I came in the Foreign Service and Ambassador Scobie was the first woman DCM in Saudi Arabia. And I remember we were having that conversation about like, wow, they're sending a woman as the deputy ambassador to Saudi Arabia. What is that? And at the time I was like, well, this is long overdue. <laughs> Actually, we need to be sending an example right. to the world that we send women all over the world to lead our embassies because, period, because whatever, because. And I felt that same way about oftentimes people in Glyfa will ask, well, how is it serving as like a queer diplomat in the Middle East? It must be hard. And I was like, well, just naturally, queer people are 10% of every population. So there are queer people in the Middle East, right? So there's a community mm -hmm. here that's figuring out how to live and thrive and love and try to find acceptance. So it's been a real privilege to get to know them and an honor to learn more about them. And it's been really nice to myself plug into these places where they can say, wow, here is an openly queer diplomat with his husband and child living in a predominantly Muslim country. And what does that mean? I think it sends a message that our country, that the United States is open, that we're about people who can do the work. And it doesn't matter what your sexual orientation is, what your ability status is, what your gender is. It's about doing the job. And I think that's a really powerful message for people all over the world, but also in this region that I've been really privileged to learn about and love for the past 20 years. I remember that last summer, Joey Hood, who's the PDAS in NEA, he had a conversation with Glyfa and said, we need you in NEA. Whatever you're thinking about, I can't make this work because of this, or it's going to be hard because of this, we will try to figure out how to make it work for you. And I thought that was a really powerful message from leadership to say that we want your diversity here. It matters to us. It matters for our policy. It matters for our country to have strong people from every background in this region and that we are specifically recruiting you. I thought it was something that other bureaus should do as well. If they're not doing it, maybe they are. I only know the NEA example. I just wanted to pick up what you were saying in terms of representing the United States while you're abroad and just doing our jobs. To what extent your incredible cultural adaptability plays into it and your absolutely exceptional, frankly, language skills? Because your Arabic is outstanding among French and all of these other languages. And I know you were even studying Dari when we were in Afghanistan. So to what extent your personal commitment and ability to show cultural adaptability leads to this greater, perhaps, acceptance of you and your leadership role in a particular country? 
So I feel very intimidated answering that question from you who speaks like 18 languages perfectly, (laughs) but I'm going to do my best. (laughs) So yeah, I think that's just it. You are actually a great example of this. And it's how plugging into a language and plugging into a society, it's more than just about a demarche. It's more than just about the day-to-day job. It's really about showing a real interest. And people know when you're sincere about it, when you really want to learn about their society and when you're interested in learning about how intricate jokes or cultural or learning the food or recipes, whatever it is, however you want to plug into a place, people know when that's genuine or not. And when it's genuine, people are excited to show, especially Americans, that they have this picture about this distant, huge powerful country that's so far from us. And then you can show up and say, I want to learn about you, actually. I actually want to learn your language and I want to learn your jokes and I want to listen to your music. And I remember you in Afghanistan did an excellent job of that. And I try to model that as well, just really plugging in wherever you are and just learning. That's our job as diplomats. Our job is clearly to represent our country abroad. But another big part of our job is to explain this country to the United States, to our policymakers in Washington. There's sometimes when people are formulating their policies in a country, whereas from our own American mindset, it's really hard to understand why they might be doing something that doesn't make sense to us. But then when you know maybe a little bit more history, a little bit more about the background of the society, you're like, okay, we can explain to Washington a little bit better with more nuance what is actually happening. Because it's like, we know that they're doing this thing that you think and that me on the face of it think is actually not really in their interests. But let me explain a little bit of the background about why this is happening. And that is such a powerful conversation to be able to have. That's all such great advice. I had this extremely impressive boss, Melissa Brown in Jakarta, and I was doing ASEAN as political chief. And I just had this great opportunity to learn from her about how to read the Zoom room, if you will, with these 10 different nations is what you were saying, Lawrence, is that some people were saying yes, but they were saying no, or or they were saying no, but they were saying maybe. Right. You got this whole different array and you really have to be an expert in those cultures to understand what they're saying. Because if you hand the transcript to somebody in D.C., they won't get that. And that's a huge, important skill, I think. That's really critical in societies like where they have a hard time saying no. So in the Middle East and North Africa, they're very accommodating people, very hospitable people. So people's instinct is to say yes. Or to not say anything or to say, well, maybe tomorrow or God willing. So you have to really be able to know like, okay, that God willing means never. (laughs) This one means, okay, maybe we can talk a little bit more. This one means this. And it takes a little while to be able to get that nuance. Yeah, so it's an important thing. I will close and ask if you have any last message for folks who are out there in the field. You're here representing people as a rising leader. I'm not trying to lard it on, but you really are, and you're representing a younger generation. And just wondering if you have any thoughts for people out there who are finishing now the second year of the pandemic. Yeah. I guess this in the second year of the pandemic, I think what it's taught me even more is that just everything is so unpredictable. So you never know. When I bid on this job as Consul General in Casablanca, it was a much different job than the one I actually inherited. I'm fortunate enough that I know a number of people who were the last 
five consul generals here, and I consider some of them very close friends and mentors. And the job that I'm doing is not the same job that any of them is doing because of where we are in the world. But it's still a privilege and a joy and an honor. And there's still ways to find really interesting things to do, even from a Zoom room sometimes (laughs) that we might be doing in person. There are ways in which we can have all kinds of conversations sometimes with wider groups. Again, I was talking about my gratitude journal, right? Trying to think, okay, usually we would have done this in person and I am an extrovert and I like being in a room and I like doing things in person and it gives me all kinds of energy and I am excited when I leave after great conversations. But in a country that is as large and diverse as Morocco, a lot of times we can reach more people through technology. And we are able to have conversations that we might not have had a technological element or online element before. But now sometimes we'll have these conversations. There's a Moroccan poet society called the Olive Writers, and they write a lot of poetry in English. And we plugged into them. I also like poetry. When I speak to them from time to time, they have members from all over Morocco, from like like the south to the north and east and west. And before that group was a largely Casablanca-based group. And now, because of technology, we're able to do things a little bit more broadly. So I guess my advice to anyone in this time is just to try to find the silver lining as much as we can and just run with it. Try to find joy, right? (laughs) That's great. Well, C.G. Randolph, on behalf of all our listeners, sincere thanks for joining us today. This episode was brought to you as part of the Una Chapman Cox Foundation Project on American Diplomacy and the Foreign Service. The Association for Diplomatic Studies and Training, or ADST, manages the podcast series, which was begun by FSO Jeremy Beer. Special thanks to our assistant, Sama Kuba, who couldn't join us today. If you're interested in exploring a career in the State Department, please visit careers.state.gov. To find out more about the practice of U.S. diplomacy, please visit uccoxfoundation.org adst.org or the American Academy of Diplomacy. Thank you very much.